gang. Hey, first and foremost, I want to thank everyone so far that has joined. We appreciate you coming out. Uh, this is going to be recorded and we'll be putting this out um, through a couple different channels, obviously through Rehab United and the morning podcast, um, the morning shakeout podcast newsletter. So um, welcome to the run for all, all for run uh, Q&A live Zoom call. This is uh, the equivalent of a video podcast in my mind. Uh, we appreciate you joining us. Glad you guys could make it. Um, I'm super stoked. I get to spend some time just talking to my buddy Mario, and I'll introduce you guys guys to him in two seconds here. Most of you guys already know who he is, but um, today uh, we have you guys on mute, and obviously you do not need to show yourself on video. Uh, to some extent, Mario and I are going to talk today, uh, going over some questions that we got uh, from the registry, you know, participants, first and foremost, we'll cover all those topics, kind of just free chat, talk about kind of how COVID's affecting us as runners and, and as coaches, and then we'll open things up towards the end for a Q&A. Um, with that being said, you can use the chat. If you never used Zoom before, you can go on chat and ask questions. Anything we don't get to, we will be sure to at, uh, answer and get that back out to you via email. Um, you are, by attending this, you're entered to win a massage, electric massager, which is kind of cool, and a potential win of a free pair of shoes. So we're stoked. Uh, Fleet Feet donated the shoes here in San Diego, a running store here, as well as um, our, our Hyper Volt massager was donated by Hyper Ice. So we're very excited for that. All right, so let, a little bit about me. My name is Brian Hill. I'm the owner and, and co-owner of Rehab United Sports Medicine and Physical Therapy in San Diego and in Seattle. I'm a physical therapist by trade. Uh, I'm a former soccer player. I played professionally for about four or five years. And uh, I started Rehab United with my brother in 2003. We, we have a wellness side of the business, which is physical therapy, massage, and so forth. And then we have a fitness side of the business. So we cover all aspects of health and wellness. And so if you have any questions today, today on injury prevention, specific injuries, we'll address those. And then uh, my good friend, Mario Fraioli, a great friend of mine has only become closer to me over the years, a running coach, an all American runner stud, uh, and then was the uh, senior editor of competitor mag, I think 2001 to six. Am I right, Mario? 2010 to 16. Oh, I got the, the numbers right. Just 10 years. Numbers right. deal. I'm making you older than you really are. Apologize. And he is the mastermind of the morning uh, shakeout podcast, which is an outstanding resource for runners uh, and fitness enthusiasts. So I, I think it's so great to have you just spend some time with me and chat to our, our friends here. So kind of tell them a little bit about you. Just, I know I introduced you, but give them a little, take on, on what you do and what you're up to. Yeah, well, thanks for the intro. If you haven't, I did have Brian here on my podcast. It's episode 86. You can go back in the archives, learn a bit more about his career as a professional soccer player, how he got into endurance sports, and ultimately how he founded Rehab United and the approach that they take at their clinics. But I am a runner, just like most of you who are watching this. I started in high school, mostly to keep in shape for basketball, uh, quickly dropped the basketball side of things and stayed with running year round and have not stopped since. And that was back in like 1997, 98. So I've been running for going on 23 years now, 
Um, I ran collegiately at Stonehill College in Massachusetts. It's a Division II school. I was an All-American in cross country. Uh, I still compete today in my late 30s, not quite as fast as I, I was in my early 20s, but I love getting out there. Uh, what I do for work, aside from the Morning Shakeout podcast and newsletter, my primary job is coaching runners, and I've been doing that in some capacity since 2004. I've been doing it mostly full-time since 2016 when I left Competitor Magazine, and I coach a wide range of athletes. I had eight women at the Olympic trials in Atlanta. I have a number of age groupers that I work with, um, some top ultra and trail runners, and in 2012, I was the men's marathon coach for Costa Rica at the Olympic Games in London. And at any given time, I'm working with, you know, 15 to 20 individual athletes. And then I have a couple groups here in the Bay Area that unfortunately have not been able to meet with over the past couple of months because of COVID-19. But I do coach a San Francisco running company racing team as well as the Golden Gate Triathlon Club run workouts. So that's a brief intro for me. And I'm excited to be here to talk with all of you guys and spend some time with you, Brian. That'd be good. Me too. I, I think you know, we both kind of had a, a unique path, you know, in terms of how we moved into our careers. I, I wanted to be a professional soccer player, was a full-time, four-time All-American, and I completely fractured my femur and went, I should maybe learn how to deal with this. And that's what was my, got me into being a, a physical therapist, or at least an institute, kind of that early passion for health and wellness. So um, I'm great. It's so great you talked about the coaching aspect, because I'm so curious as to, with with no race, all the races being canceled, what, what's been your feedback from your athletes on what am I training for? How do I stay motivated? Where's my mindset around this? Cause what, what am I doing? What am I, why am I paying you as a coach? What, what do I do right now? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of uncertainty um, in terms of racing and when it's going to come back and what it's going to look like when it comes back. A lot of runners, many of you listening to this are motivated by races. It's that light at the end of the tunnel that we're always aiming for. And we're not doing any of that right now. So it's, it's challenging from an athletic standpoint. It's also challenging from a coaching standpoint. What I've found with most of my one-on-one -on -one athletes is the structure and the routine of being on a schedule, even though it's not building up toward a race, right now is giving them some sense of normalcy. It's helping them to frame the rest of their day around it. And it takes their mind off of a lot of the stress that we're all facing from this COVID-19 pandemic. So for, for me, the approach that I'm taking, it depends on the individual and their, and their specific situation. But the main thing is just letting them know that, hey, racing actually it's not all that important right now. And people don't necessarily like to hear that, but your main goal right now as an athlete isn't to get fitter, maintain some certain level of fitness. It's to stay healthy and it's to keep the people around you healthy. And that's really what's driving everything that we do. And obviously it's encouraged to get outside right now and to move your body and to, you know, make sure that you're stressing all your various physiological systems, especially your immune system enough that it's able to, you know, be strong and, and resilient. So what we've done from a, a training standpoint with many of my athletes is kind of gone back to basics. And what I mean by that is doing a lot of fundamental stuff that we typically don't do when we're in the middle of like a half marathon training block or a marathon training block. So we're doing a lot more hills. We're doing a lot more effort-based workouts, things by time rather than by distance and by pace. Um, from a volume standpoint, we're typically around like 
depending on the athlete, like 50 and 75% of what their peak volume would be. So keeping it nice and steady and sustainable. So it feels like they're getting some work in, um, they're pushing themselves a little bit, but not to the point where they're going to make themselves compromise. So I think that's a long-winded way of, of answering your question, but that's some of the high level um, view that I'm taking from a, a coaching standpoint and some of the things that we're doing specifically on an individual level. That's so great. It's funny how that parallels rehab, right? Because, because my athletes are my finally athletes not are having fine. a race that stops them from working on the injury prevention side of things. And I have yeah. athletes that are actually um, focused on the little stuff, the core work, the, yes. the lack of mobility, the things that they like to throw to the wayside and tell me, oh, I didn't get to that. And a lot of the athletes I'm coaching aren't even worried about at this point, the, the marathon or the half marathon or whatever. But they're really thinking about what are all the little stuff that you've been talking to me about for the last year? You know, my, my hips not working right. My glutes are weak. My foot's been hurting. And that's been exciting for me because I've actually seen my runners respond with, Hey, I just got a PR on a, on a 5k and a training run. It's like, well, imagine if we can put that in our mindset around the value of, of recovery, the value of strength and conditioning, which makes yeah, me I'm glad you brought a question, which is, You've worked closely, not only with yourself, mm -hmm. but a lot of ultra runners. And you go, okay, I have a ton of volume. And a lot of people have more time now to run than ever, uh, believe right. it or not. Talk, one of the questions very specifically is, how can I sustain ultra long or long distance tra trail running without injury? And I thought, you have the experience. I'm going to, you know, and the back end of your answer, I'm going to show a video of things that I would do. But I want to hear mm -hmm. from you on how you're dealing with the volume, because you just said 75% less volume. What, what is your take on that? Um, well, a couple of things. So 75% of peak volume, not necessarily 75% of less volume. Yeah. But also yeah. you raise a very good point about those little things. And that's something else that I'm trying to emphasize with a lot of my athletes. That is as much a part of your training as the long runs, the hard workouts, the heavy mileage weeks. And now most people, not all, but most people have the time to do that sort of stuff, or at least they don't have the excuse as to why they can't do it because it's always, whether it's mobility routine, whether it's even just something like, um, and this is an injury prevention, but like strides after a run, like the things that don't take a lot of time, but they're kind of annoying um, are usually the first thing to go by the wayside. And right now with a lot of my athletes, we're, we're doubling down on that. I'm like, look, if you've only got this small amount of time, I want you to do the drills. I want you to do the strides. I want to make sure I'd rather have you do that mobility for 10, 15 minutes before the run than to make your run 10 or 15 minutes longer. Because if we can make that a habit now, when we do get back to normalcy, those are now going to be a part of the routine. They're embedded in there. And it's rare that we ever have the, the uninterrupted chance to embed those things into a program. So we're making sure to do that now. Um, to answer that question about ultra running. And I don't know that this is necessarily, or my answer is necessarily going to be specific to this period in time. But I think in general, when people think of, of ultra distance races, obviously it's a lot longer than, you know, half marathon, standard marathon. You're going to be out there for quite a bit longer. And your first instinct is I have to do a lot more. I have to do a lot longer long runs. I have to run a lot more mileage. And to some degree, that's true, but it's not necessarily, it's not so much more than you would really think. Um, I mean, Rob Carr, who is one of the greatest trail ultra runners in U.S. history, won Western States a bunch of times. 
in his build up to a hundred mile race, the longest single training run that he would ever do would be 30 to 33 miles. Uh, and he might race a 50 mile or a hundred K in the buildup, but it's not like he's going out doing 60 mile long runs or 50 mile long runs regularly or running much more mileage than he would for a road marathon. So I would say the most important thing for successful ultra distance racing is, is making sure number one, that you're sturdy and resilient. So a lot of this stuff that you preach with strength training is something that, I heavily incorporate into my ultra athletes training because typically at the end of an ultra, it's not about speed or, you know, you're trying to, to slow down the least. Yes. But you're trying to not fall apart from a mechanical standpoint and that's where injuries happen and that's where people get themselves into trouble. So the stronger you can be, um, the more resilient you can make your body, the better you're going to be able to move toward the end of these long races. And that goes hand in hand with developing a high level of fitness. And you don't necessarily develop a high level of fitness from going out and doing six and eight hour runs all the time. You develop a high level of fitness from doing hill repeats, from doing intervals, from doing tempo runs, like all the things that you typically would do training for 10 K half marathon marathon. And I think a lot of ultra runners operate under the misconception that I got to do more mileage. I got to just do more volume. It's like, no, you've got to develop a high level of fitness. You also have to be very strong. If you can combine those two things and have well-placed long runs in your training program, in that longer race, you are going to be much better off assuming, you know, nutrition goes right and all of those other things fall into place much better off in the last third of a race than the person who went out and was just slogging away for hours and hours on end every weekend. It's that's perfect because when I, when I look at programming, I always say the number of miles you run should correlate with the amount of mobility and strength that you do. Right. And, I think the first thing to go is that strength workout because I have a race in two weeks and I don't want to be sore. When reality is if we maintain that consistency and we can adjust volume appropriately, just like periodization and reducing volume closer to a race, we do the same thing with uh, injury prevention. Um, the key to running distance is the longer you run, the more steps you have. And the more times your foot hits the ground, the more time your knee goes through internal rotation, the more your hips is challenged. So, as a therapist that's also a coach, I'm constantly talking to the runners about, you, you gotta match your distance, your speed, and your performance to your preparation, right? And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna show the crew here a video of kind of the key mobility workout that we do. Very simple, but I use it more for my runners as a litmus test. So if, I'm, if I were someone that suddenly hired you as a long distance coach, I, I would wanna make sure we're implementing this video. And so, you can you can see the mobility video is it up they can see it so you can see this video right you can see uh i'm doing this hip drive so first and foremost hip flexor is is mighty mighty powerful and you're going to see this hip drive through three planes of motion right so i'm taking the hip and the pelvis through rotary motion which is a running position we we rotate the shoulders opposite of the hips then i move into a three-plane hamstring stretch very simple, can be done on a trail, can be done in a park, can be done at your house ahead of time. And if you notice, I'm always going to stress, regardless of the exercise, here's a glute and piriformis stretch. Notice I'm not static. Notice I'm not staying in one plane of motion. And the key to, uh, for us as a runner, is running as a single leg sport, first and foremost. Second of all, it's a rotary sport. So if you had a drone over us as we were running, we move in a circular motion. And, and that's such an important aspect of understanding 
injury prevention because as we're taught historically everything's sagittal plane everything is lengthening forward and back and we run forward and back but reality is when the foot hits the ground we drop in that's a lateral movement we ask the shin to rotate we ask the knee to go in through valgus and the femur to rotate all we're trying to do when we're running is control that motion and then use that energy to send the next leg forward and these videos are up on our youtube page you can watch them there's a ton of content there in terms of injury prevention but the biggest answer i have to someone that's running and, and going through regardless of your couch to 5k or if you're going to run an ultra marathon is your mobility has to match what you're doing and using mobility and strength to give you a limits test on M is something happening that I, I need to know about. So when I go stretch my calf before a run and I feel how tight that is, it's not necessarily painful yet. It's a cue to me or to my athlete. Like that's a goal. I gotta, I gotta increase my time on this particular exercise. If I'm doing my hip flexor stretch and I have no issue whatsoever, I'm super flexible. I feel good. No back pain. I'm good. I'll do a, a short stint to that. But I, I, want the volume or the intensity or the time spent on the mobility before and after the run to increase relative to what we find. So that's kind of my take on that. Um, yeah. I and so I know you've used that with a lot of your athletes because they go, what do I do about cadence relative injury prevention? What do I, how do I go from a slower pace to a faster pace? And where does cadence fall for you? I'll get to the cadence um, question specifically here in a second, but just to piggyback off of the last thing that you said, my strength coach, Nate Helming has a saying that I think is so true and applicable here. He says, you've got to earn your miles. And what he means by that is every runner says, I want to run more miles for X, Y, and Z reasons. And he says, that's great. You've got to earn them. That means you've got to do the mobility work necessary as you just described before you head out and run. You've got to understand how to move well. You've got to make the effort to strengthen yourself so that you can handle those more miles that you want to do. They just aren't, those miles just aren't given to you. You've got to earn them. And, and I think just framing your mindset in that way can help make a lot of this stuff that people push aside a lot more valuable and a lot more applicable to the situation. I love that earn your miles. Cause for me, it's, I say almost earn the ability to perform when it matters. And so, so much of the time our runners are every run is like an intensity and every run has to be dialed in when the reality is I would rather the run today feel mediocre, slower, controlled, so that tomorrow when I've actually programmed, you know, intense intervals that we can nail that and, and really succeed and push the envelope forward on our performance down the road. And so much of that never gets done by the athlete because they're too sore, they haven't done the mobility work, or they went too hard the day before. So now what happens is 25, 35, 40% of the workouts are done at subpar rather than be really ready to perform and really ready to put that workout in. And, and it's so vital to get good rest and to go through the mobility and strength uh, component of this. Uh, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, everything has a purpose and it's just coming to understand what that purpose is. What's the purpose of the mobility exercises? What's the purpose of the easy run? What's the purpose of the drills and strides after your, your distance run? What's the purpose of the interval workout? Like all of those pieces come together and it can be helpful to just separate those elements and, and treat it like a puzzle and understand how they're all
coming together at the end of the day. Absolutely. Okay, I'm interested. Tell me about this cadence work. I, I'm, I'm familiar with it. I, I like it. But what do you use this? Do you coach your athletes? What are, what are your thoughts there? So what are we referring to specifically when it comes to cadence work? Increasing well, someone's it. asking about increasing cadence, but I, I guess more than anything, what do you tell your athletes about cadence at all? I mean, for me, I can talk about the drills that I institute, but what are you talking about? Um, and ways does cadence matter to you? Are you letting it be self-selected or do you really coach it? So I think where a lot of runners get themselves stuck is they read in some article on runner's world that your ideal cadence is 180. They fixate on a number and everything that they do is to bring them to that number without realizing why they're going there. And 180 is going to work well for a lot of people, but it's not going to be everyone's ideal cadence. And certainly for, for one workout versus another. And there are a lot of factors that are going to affect someone's cadence. Your athletic history can affect your, your cadence. Um, you know, the, everything else that's going on with your mechanics can, can affect your cadence. So, I mean, for me, I, I hate giving like blanket advice on cadence. I'd rather talk more about the fundamentals of, of form and doing things right and letting cadence be a, a byproduct of that. And on an individual level, when I'm, when I'm working with people and I actually see them on the track, it's a lot easier for me to coach that because I can sit there and explain what it is that I see and what we're trying to improve and then put the pieces in place to, to do that. But, you know, I start with just form. I'm watching how someone's moving and I'm not just looking at their feet, how their feet are hitting the ground at what rate they're hitting the ground. I'm looking at everything from the top on down. So I'm looking at their head. Where is it positioned? Are they looking straight ahead? Are their eyes like cast down like this? Cause if their eyes are looking straight down like this, then they've got rounded shoulders. And if the shoulders are rounded, you're probably going to be crossing in, in, front of your body and, and rotating. And if you're doing all that, I don't care what your cadence is. There are a lot of other things that we need to correct first before we touch on the cadence. So I encourage all of my athletes in one cue that I give a lot is to run tall, especially when we're at the track doing intervals, or if you mm -hmm. find yourself sort of getting lazy during a race and things are falling apart, I tell people to run tall because that's going to give you a nice alignment. And that alignment is, is really important that everything up top is straight ahead and square that we've got a nice healthy tension through the torso that we're engaging our hips and our glutes and all that stuff the right way. And I mean, for some people that may end up in a cadence that's like 165, but they're moving very efficiently and they're doing things well. And that's just, you know, where they can, they can comfortably move when they're running at a normal training pace. And, and I'm okay with that if everything else is looking good. Um, we're always trying to, at least with the athletes I work with, we're always trying to minimize, um, let me take that back. Like we're, we're trying to work on like our interaction with the ground as well um, after we've taken care of all of the other stuff. So if I'm looking at someone and they're running and their foot is spending a lot of time on the ground, we're going to work on that. And we work on that through drills. We work on that through doing plyometric exercises. We work on improving just elasticity and explosiveness, um, you know, in the lower legs. And oftentimes like, you know, that can either help with cadence or it can help you just get a little bit more out of your, you know, out of your mechanics. But um, I don't think there's an ideal cadence. I don't coach people to try and hit a certain number. I do on an individual level, you know, look at people. And if it, if, if it is something that looks like we, we need to increase just because their efficiency is terrible, then we'll take the steps toward doing that. Um, but changing someone's mechanics, especially someone who's been running 
for a long time can be really challenging. Uh, and you're retraining a lot of motor patterns and things like that, that um, just, it doesn't happen, you know, overnight. So it's, it's a very like patient process, but the main question I would ask yourself um, or ask a coach who's trying to change something for you is why am I, why am I doing this? Is it because I'm getting injured? Is it because I'm not very efficient? Is it because I'm trying to run faster? Because that is going to affect how we prescribe the drills, the exercises, the supplementary things that are going to improve the situation. I mean, you're, you're obviously speaking my language. Um, I look at form and then I look at efficiency relative to biomechanics. So I, I come from a biomechanical perspective because I'm almost a foot nerd. I love the foot. I understand it. It's very complicated. And it's the one thing in running that's on the ground that has influence. So um, what's so important to me is, is actually seeing someone run. So I, I have so many athletes around the world send me 15, 20 second video clips. And I have one here of a guy running on a treadmill, very simple. And what I'm looking for is that efficiency or lack thereof. And you'll see early on, he's got this foot stride out in front where it's almost like a break, you know, and I'm going to loop this video. And now he's got a, a knee drive. You'll see his foot lands directly under his chest and, and his shoulders and ear. And to me, if I'm breaking, I don't have the ability to transition force moving forward and it's not mechanically sound. Now, in the second portion of the video, it's not necessarily how he's going to run moving forward, but we've worked on where's the foot contact, where's the knee position, where's the hip position. Obviously, the faster you run, you can change things differently. Slower you run, you, you, you're not going to, if you're running a 10 plus minute mile, you're not getting 180 steps per minute. It's not very likely and it's not really relevant in, in, anyway. So we take video like this from the side. We film it from back behind and from the front. And really I'm looking at foot position constantly because it's something I can control. But what I do love you talked about is if I have head position, head down, if I have shoulders elevated, I'm, I'm losing the ability to control my breathing. My eye position's different. I'm, I'm down here. So many factors that go into it. So I, I really appreciate the way you look at it. Um, again, as a physical therapist, biomechanical specialist, so important for us to, and this is one of the things I see the most is we just get fatigued and we're asking the muscles to do something they shouldn't. We don't want to run on our joints. We want to run with the muscle. And when we put the foot out in front, we have to break and decelerate motion before we can translate it forward. That's the biggest thing I'm coaching. And, and I posted on Instagram or something and you actually referenced it, trying the drill where I had my hands up against the wall and I did these knee drives. And really all that is, is about transitioning force. So um, the next piece of that, and I kind of want to back up and, and a little bit is show you a, a strength program that we put together. And I want to get, after you see it, I want to get your take on some, if you've done those, I know you, when you were down here, you came to class all the time. Um, I know you're going to a gym now. We do everything's in matrices. So this is a squat matrix. And you notice by me reaching in different positions, I'm asking the hip, the knee, the ankle to go in different positions you're going to see me transition to what I call the SFT squat, which is toed in, toed out, right foot in front, in, out, left foot in front, in, out. And again, we're asking the shin, the femur, the knee to go and be tweaked. And it's because we recognize that everyone runs differently. Everyone needs a different load or a stress relative to their body. So 
you're seeing here now a lunge matrix and it's essentially a lunge but with drives and the drives change the hip position relative to the foot position to me that's the key in staying healthy so much of the time we do very isolated work right sitting on a bench and doing knee extensions with resistance looks and feels and tastes nothing like running so you're never going to see us do something like that i know we've talked a lot about that finally here is a single leg drill and running is a single leg sport and if you can't go through a single leg squat my challenge to the athlete always is that is a must because you're going to start running and you're not going to be able to control motion that's when we start to see the injuries pop up i would assume very similar to the athletes you work with is when they pick up the phone and call you and say mario i'm not going to be able to do the runs in the long run because i i have pulled a muscle or i have a stress fracture you know how many of those athletes are doing the strength work and, and what does it look like uh, for your athletes because for us you know you're seeing this challenge constantly about biomechanically changing the body to where it's almost like you've put the body through enough chaos that when you start running and pushing the envelope you have tolerance for different positions or if you step off a curb wrong you're not suddenly going to blow out your ankle or whatever i love that you're demoing this stuff for everyone on the call because when i came to rehab united when my wife and I were living back in San Diego. We did a lot of these matrices and I stole them from you. And that lunge matrix is part of the warm up I have my athletes do before every run, moving in all of those different planes. And it's, I mean, that's mobility, not necessarily strength. But when they are doing strength work, one thing you talked about earlier that I think we should really harp on is the single leg exercises because at the end of the day, running is a single leg sport. And for the athletes that I work with mostly in person, because we can do this when we're in the same place, I have little single leg tests that we do, just seeing how, how well they can do a single leg squat or a single leg deadlift and seeing how they move. Because when you are running, even at an easy pace, certainly at a, at a fast pace, um, you know, that's exactly, you know, what's happening over and over and over again. And if we can train that, reinforce that, we really can lessen the likelihood of those types of injuries happening. And I've been doing this coaching thing for about 16 years now, and I work with more athletes now, but I actually have a lesser rate of injury amongst my athletes now versus what I had 10 years ago. And sure. I'm convinced that the single biggest reason for that is the introduction of mobility and strength work into their routines and everyone is everyone's competency at, at those things is at a different level but the people who have stuck with it uh, and have been diligent about it and made it a part of their program I mean I don't get those calls from people who are like hey I can't run tomorrow because all of a sudden I've pulled this muscle or I, I've got a stretch fracture or if I get them they're very very rare but they've helped my athletes to improve their resiliency toward those types of things. And they're hugely, hugely important. And I, th I think what you said at the beginning, which was interesting is the lunge matrix you're using as a mobility technique. And my opinion is mobility, flexibility, and strength should look very similar and go ahead and just put 10 pounds in your hands and do the exact same exercise. And guess what you have a strength exercise. Something that's important for the audience is, to make change, we need fatigue. And that's an important piece of the puzzle. So by adding a load, 
we ask for more recruitment of the fiber. And when we get to fatigue, we tell the brain, hey, we need a hormone here. We need a chemical and to heal. And that's an important aspect because in rehab early on, you're going to no way a band, a five pounder, but you didn't get hurt, you know, with a low intense exercise. Very few people walk in and say, you know what? I was picking up a pillow and I, and I threw out my back. It's, it, it does happen, but it's rare. And what we found is speed, load, lack of control tend to cause the problem, right? I always say either you're hit by a bus or you're doing something above what your body can handle. And so again, why we stress the importance of functional strength is because so much of the stuff that's out there doesn't really train the body to do what it needs to do. For example, again, leg extension is we're taking the quadricep to extend the knee. That's not how it works in running. When we run and land on our foot, the knee actually flexes and the, and the uh, quad actually decelerates the knee into flexion. And that slingshot effect drives us forward. So it's important that we really evaluate the strength conditioning stuff we are doing. And if we want to really be successful at running or any sort of field sport, the strength conditioning program has to look and feel like this actual sport. And, and I, another thing I would stress on that is, yeah, it's a single leg sport. Yes, we need core strength. Yes, you need, yes, we need mobility. But more importantly, we have to evaluate like when we're doing it, how we're doing it, what that stress looks like. And so I think it's really important to also get some, someone looking at your strength program, making sure it's about treating the root cause and not the symptom. Cause so many people come in and it's like, I have plantar fasciitis and immediately they go to Google and start massaging the bottom of their foot, which is great. And a lot of times that works, but reality is we didn't, the plantar fascia didn't just magically start hurting. It starts hurting for a specific reason. So we're looking at the root causes. Do you have, you know, here's my handy dandy foot. I always keep a foot with me. Um, if you look at the heel, you know, when we hit the ground, the heel should drop down and in. And if you're looking from the front, as the heel drops, we get what we like to call pronation. That deceleration or the collapse of the foot ends up causing the, the tibia to go the other way. So you can start to see eversion take place or this, this angle. And, you know, I don't need to get too technical, but you can imagine the ground reaction force and then transition to chain reaction biomechanics is I have to control this motion. So as the heel drops, the front of the foot comes up and the shin starts to rotate. That turns the system on, chain reaction up, up the knee. Well, if the tibia and the femur aren't in alignment, now the kneecap starts to move. But you'll see people with runner's knee start taping their knee when reality is the, the knee has two, three, four, if you want to argue four contact points, where the shin has 22 and the femur has the in the 30s. So where should we be spending our time, right? It's, it's kind of like if, I'm, if I don't have the ability to finish a race at pace, I need to work on interval work. If I'm not strong enough to sustain endurance for a long period of time, I need to work on hills or, or my endurance. Same thing with, you know, the foot and function or looking at strength relative to mobility and recognizing, again, it should translate to what is my biomechanics actually doing versus, you know, again, leg extensions or hamstring curls or something like that. And again, there's nothing wrong with those things, but that's not going to be the bread and butter of any program that we do because I, we strongly believe that root cause is more important than symptom. And most of the time we start looking above and below. So if the knee hurts, 
something's going on at the hip or something's going down below because the knee is by far the dumbest joint in the body. It just goes wherever the foot tells it to go and it goes wherever the hip tells it to go. So I know that's kind of a funky fast way of saying things, but I thought it was important because you were talking about a lunge matrix for mobility and we do the exact same thing. I'm at every race I'm doing, I'm sitting there doing this mobility. I usually have a bullhorn and I'm getting 20, 30, 40, 50 people doing a warm up with me. And I'm always amazed at how few people in the corral are even doing any sort of uh, preparation. So super important to do. Um, yeah, see, I always carry foot. Mara, do you always carry a foot with you? Not, uh, not during the week, only on weekends. <laughs> I love it. Um, okay, you had talked a little bit before about kind of neck position for running. And one of the questions was, uh, what is proper running and jogging for form after a neck injury? So I'm curious as your take, because we talked about posture and position, but you, you brought some of that stuff up. Do you have any other thoughts on that? I'm going to punt that one to you. Back to me. Not my area of expertise. If I had, if I had an athlete come to me with that question, the first thing I would do is, is go to a, you know, physical therapist or medical professional and try to get a better understanding of, you know, of what I need to pay attention to. That's a little outside my wheelhouse. Fair enough. I, I know you talked about eye position and, and where the shoulder position is, but I, I, that's one of the things I thought about in this injury that I think a lot of people may not be thinking about is in this region is, is a nerve called the phrenic nerve and it affects the diaphragm. And I, I think that's an important piece to look at because when we start getting uh, up here and we're protecting our neck and we're starting to move almost as one unit, we lose the ability first and foremost to expand the chest and the lung. So that's something I'm always looking for. Whether someone has a neck injury or not, I'm looking at that. Does someone hold themselves in a, in a really stressed position? We lack arm motion in this case, so our arm drive doesn't exist. And again, therefore, we're not getting this translation of the shoulders and pelvis relative to the, the foot. So right foot's in front, okay? What we're gonna see is as the right stride goes forward, we're gonna see the trunk move in the opposite direction. So that would, that would be my answer if you're on the call. Um, and listening, that's something I would look at. Um, also pay attention to shortness of breath, uh, morning headache, fatigue. Those are all signs that you're not, you know, in, the, in a good position. And a lot of people that come to me and they're saying, I'm having this problem. A lot of that happens when it's cold out because when they're cold, they start contracting a little bit. Certainly happens to the cyclists I work with. So pay attention to that for sure. Um, I'm gonna take the next one too, okay, Mario? It's uh, on foot mechanics. Go for it. Since I love feet. Um, well, said, can you speak to recovery, on recovery from ankle injuries, plantar fasciitis, ankle strength, injury prevention, and furthermore, specifically tendonitis between the big toe and the pad of the right foot. So what probably what I want the audience to kind of understand is a little bit what I talked about before, but when we look at our foot, we look at a couple of key pieces. One is by the nature of having a flat foot or an arched foot in itself isn't a problem. And for us, more importantly is when we're coming back from a foot injury, we first have to address, do we have a foot uh, dysfunction? And that's an important piece of this. Um, you should assess whether or not your heel moves a little bit or a lot. And if you can take your heel and kind of cup it and you have a lot of translation, typically that's about 10 degrees max. So that's a good thing. But if you grab your heel and it just doesn't budge, 
that automatically tells me that you're going to have to get motion somewhere else in the chain. So the next place to get it is at the arch. And this is called the midfoot. It's right where that the proximal aspect or the edge of your toes meets the center of your foot, also known as the arch. And you got this key joint here that's really important. And this is where the talus meets the navicular bone. And we want to see that drop. And I'm getting technical here, but I think it's important. That drop is super important, not only to the ground, but you're going to see it turn this direction. So if my heel stays, you're going to see this translation of the foot in what we call a frontal plane motion. And that's really important because if we can't get that, now we start getting different things like a medial whip. And that, that's where when we pick up the foot off the ground, we start to see the heel turn. So that translation, almost think of toes out, heels driving. And we get a lot of problems in the big toe. So anyone that's sitting at home and that their shoes off and they see their big toe at a, what we call a hallux valgus, that's an indication of a couple things. Mostly it's indication that when you have your foot coming off the ground, you're starting to translate and create a, a lateral force over time. And if you have that, there's obviously things you can do about it. But most importantly is you got to go back in and have some specialists look at what your heel's doing relative to the arch. Really, really important. The other thing we see is deformities in the foot. So if you were to take your foot, perfect position, neutral, meaning the alignment is straight up and down, the heel should be straight, flat to the ground, and same with the front of the foot. But what we tend to see is the front of the foot has a bony angle, which we call a varus. And a varus lends itself to a bunch of problems because we have this peroneal tendon on the outside causes peroneal tendinitis. Excessive collapsing tends to cause the medial aspect of this shin, muscle, tendon, which is called uh, posterior tibialis, but most people know that is the internal shin splint, the shin splint right on the shin. And then finally, we have this situation where the foot isn't being controlled from heel to foot down. And you, someone asked about drop foot or returning from drop foot, but there's an anterior shin muscle that if we don't have control or timing, we start getting the anterior shin splint. So my general rule of thumb when someone's coming back from a foot injury is first and foremost, you have to know what the problem is. And if you don't, you're just throwing darts at the wall. So you're online, you're foam rolling the calf, you're using a, you know, a ball, you're doing ankle exercises. And I'm always saying like, if I'm playing darts, I'm throwing right at the bullseye. So I want my exercises for rehab to be the most effective. So I'd rather you have three things that are focused and driven towards your problem versus a bunch of other stuff that's really not addressing the issue. So that I would really go at mechanics first and that just requires a professional. And I think so much of the time we're waiting for it to get better if I just back off and running. When for me, the reality is if you can address it immediately, most of those things go away very quickly. The sooner we have a, a treatment for it, and address it, the better. So if anyone wants to add, you know, a question on that, um, I'm happy to answer that because, I mean, I could go on for the entire podcast on, on foot stuff. But again, I, as much as I think so many things are important, and I agree with you, Mario, like on cadence and form, when I work on strength and conditioning and mobility and so on and so forth, the reality is when people work on those drills, the rest of it works out. So if I can get the foot to align, now I know the knee's in a good position. And then I know the hip's in a good position. And so 
the, the rule of thumb would be that same thing. I, I would be continuing to focus on the little stuff right now, the balance, the control, so on and so forth. So looks like we got a question. Do you have any advice for people with LLD? I didn't know until an x-ray um, longer than other. I can, let me see. Due to an injury that one leg is 0.6. Oh, leg length discrepancy. Got it. Okay. So this is a great question because reality is most leg length discrepancies are not true. Meaning you can take an x-ray and positionally you can be in, in, uh, one position or the other and have a, a, a true leg length is actually the femur bone is measured on both sides and they compare. And then the tibia is measured on both sides and they compare. I'll give you an example. I broke my femur when I was 14. And when you, when you have a fracture and you still have an open growth plate, what happens is one leg can keep growing and the other leg doesn't. I have about a quarter inch um, that's different. And then some people that we see have had a birth issue, meaning they've had a leg length since birth. The great thing about the human body is we adapt. And I don't need to insert in my foot or in my shoe because my body adapted over time. So most of the time, as for our therapists, we would not put an insert, a heel lift, or anything like that on one side versus the other. Now, if we start getting a leg length discrepancy that's massive, and that massive is from some sort of bone disorder or a surgery that removes some of the bone or, or here's an example of someone that would show up is scoliosis. So we have such a significant curve that the pelvis has changed so much that the only way to align the pelvis is to put an insert in. But we would always start very small and work our way up. And what we want is the least amount of something in there that allows for the pain and function to change. So we want pain to go away and we want function and performance to increase. Um, I make custom orthotics and, and I don't give them to just anyone. So people come in, hey, I think I need orthotics. And if their foot, it doesn't have a deformity and there's not a leg length discrepancy that I'm really worried about and it's more of an alignment issue, you don't need an ortho orthotic. But every shoe company out there or excuse me, shoe stores, got orthotics, you can get them anywhere. Well, how do you know if you really need one? That's another question. And essentially an insert is an orthotic. Um, for me, it's like glasses. If you go to the eye doc and you can see the eye chart and you just cannot read it, and then you put on prescription glasses and all of a sudden you can read it, great. If I look at your foot and I feel, hey, I can make the stronger, more mobile, and then I can change the outcome or your functional position, you're not getting an orthotic. But if I see that it's something that is not going to change, and I'll give you an example. If you don't, if you have a flat foot and you've, you, you could do exercises for 10 years, I've never seen anyone magically grow an arch. And it's because it's a biomechanical deficit. And so we would, again, not give an orthotic just because someone has a flat foot, but how is the function relative to your, your position? And that's an important piece of this because Leg length discrepancies are often misdiagnosed, first and foremost, and most of the time we can change the biomechanics or educate you to make some sort of change in the way your pelvis moves or you have control, and sometimes it's a strength issue as well. So great question. Cool. Thank you. Um, you, have, you have anything to add on that, buddy? No. That is outside my area of expertise. Well, this is why people come to you, right? One of the things you said at the beginning was programming. I find right now, and I'm classic for this as an athlete, I was, if you put me on a soccer field, I was massively disciplined. Like I never missed a workout. I would train on my own. I'd call my buddies. 
running and triathlons are different for me. I love it. I love the actual day of in terms of finishing. I don't love the swim. You know this, Mario. Um, running races, I do get pretty amped for. But for the most part, I, I, training, I need a coach to hold some consistency for me. So I've always kind of called you, hey, you got any workouts for me? But I've always done better when I have a program. I, I think that's an important piece of this. So how do I progress? If I'm, if I'm on this call and I, and I want to hear from this stud, Mario, who's ran his whole life, been an outstanding athlete, but coached the greatest of the greatest, as well as you've coached a lot of people that aren't real high level athletes and you've helped them right in your running groups. How do I progress? How do I increase mileage and not get, get, you know, hurt? How do I, how do I have a mental approach right now when I show up to a, a group run? Obviously we're not seeing as many of those go on, but when we were doing group runs, what do I do? I want to keep up with my buddies. Now I'm pushing. What, what's your take on that? I think you have a pretty good philosophy on that. You've worked with so many groups and coached so many groups. Well, I think the biggest thing to keep in mind, regardless of who you are, is none of this happens overnight, especially in endurance sports. You've got to take a long-term approach. And that is in conflict with how we often think about things in our society today. We want everything right away. We're used to getting things right away. I can go on Amazon, order something, and it'll be here by the end of the day, if not you know, tomorrow morning. Um, there's instant everything. That's, it just doesn't work like that in endurance sports. So if you I did join- read that, I read that Amazon had 48% of all online orders this, uh, this last month, 40 48% of all online orders. So that tells you people are getting yeah. Amazon boxes. Yeah. Well, that's insane. But you, so you can't order fitness from Amazon. It's not going to come tomorrow. <laughs> so I think just keeping that long-term approach in mind, what you're committing to isn't a time or a race goal necessarily. Those are, those are great. You're committing to the lifestyle of being an endurance athlete. And if you commit to that lifestyle and if you're in it for the long term, you're going to learn. You're going to improve. Um, you're going to better be able to keep up with your buddies. If you join a new running club this week and you get dropped right out the gate, like that's okay. A lot of those people have probably been coming for like two or three years or they've been running a lot longer than you two or three years down the road. You're going to be, you know, up in that front group or you're going to be ahead of the new people who come in. So I think it's just keeping that perspective in mind. And that goes for everything else that you just described as well. If you want to increase your mileage, if you're running 15 miles a week right now and you're out doing, you know, say three, five mile runs a week, that's how you get your 15 miles and you want to bump it up to 30. Well, it'd be silly to bump your mileage up to 30 miles next week in any way, shape or form, because as you were describing earlier with the injury side of things, like your body's just not going to be able to handle that load. It's just going to take time to get there. So it's like, okay, well, what can we do? I take someone in that situation who's running five miles three times a week. And I'm like, okay, well, I know you can go knock out five miles. So I could add a fourth day in there somewhere. And all of a sudden we're at 20 miles or you know, I could space things out a little bit more and have you do, you know, a three mile run, a five mile run, a seven mile run, and then maybe another three mile run. Like I increase the frequency, like I can, I can increase volume that way. And every individual case is different. There's no magic mileage rule. You read about, you know, 10% rule. I mean, I've seen people get hurt, uh, increasing their mileage by 10% per week. Um, I've seen people not get hurt by increasing their mileage 25%. For a week, it, you know, it's it's going to depend. I wouldn't put a number on it, but just take a very like patient approach and don't try to change too much at once. So 
or the example of someone who's looking to increase their mileage, I'm like, all right, well, let's, if you, if you can comfortably handle five miles on a run right now, the first thing I'm going to do is see if we can handle, you know, one more day of running per week uh, and increase the frequency that way. Um, because if we do that for a month, that's four more days of running. That's another 20, that's 20 miles that you just gained, you know, in a month right there. And then there's more that we can do building off of that. Maybe one of those, now that we're doing four runs a week instead of three, maybe one of those, we can start adding a mile or two. And now all of a sudden we got four runs a week, but now one's at seven miles and you've got three, you know, that are five. So that's just a very like high level, you know, sort of basic example of, of, taking a long-term approach, committing to the lifestyle, realizing that, you know, there are going to be some frustrations involved. There's a little trial and error involved. We're all at the end of the day, an experiment of one. So you've just got to play around with different things, whether that's mileage types of workouts that you're doing, um, trying to solve your nutrition problems. I mean, none of it's going to get fixed overnight. It's just going to take a little bit of time and giving yourself that grace. I think there are a lot of people who, get frustrated when things aren't necessarily better tomorrow. It's like, well, even the best athletes in the world, I mean, that's not how it works for them either. They've got to that point because it's been years of trial and error and triumph and frustration. And even if you're not trying to be the best athlete in the world, that's how you're going to improve. You're going to have to kind of take your lumps along with the successes. I, I love that. I, I want to kind of get into your heart a little bit here. Um, I know how much you care about the people you work with. Uh, I've seen how you treat your friends. Talk, talk to us about kind of a little, little philosophy on the people that really just go, I hate running. I, I, I want to do it. I know it's good for me. I can get the most fitness out of it, but they are just struggling to like enjoy it. Or again, if it's that person that didn't like running shows up and gets dropped and they're the last person, what, what's your advice on that? Or how do you feel about that in terms of, cause running has been such a big part of your life, your whole life, right? I mean, you were a basketball mm -hmm. player, obviously, you know, if you're chasing a ball, you love chasing the ball, but when you're just out there in solitude, what, tell me about that. So on a one-on-one -on -one level with athletes, if someone comes to me and says, I, I hate running. Um, my, I mean, my first question is why it's important to understand that. I mean, to give a specific example, I have a woman I started coaching, God, like 12 years ago or so now. Her name's Heather, and she comes to me, and she says, I really want to love running, but I hate it. And I said, why? And she says, well, I can't run for more than 20 minutes before I have to stop. And I said, okay. And come to find out, she's going on the treadmill, and she's just running way faster than she needs to. So we start by slowing it down. And she doesn't feel like she's accomplishing anything. And by, you know, peeling back these layers and explaining to her like, okay, you know, you don't have to go hard all the time. Um, and actually, if you slow things down, the longer you're going to be able to go, the more frequently you're going to be able to do it. Um, you are eventually going to be able to, to progress from that. And we, we started just by doing that, just by starting to like slow her down. And she's like, oh, well, I just by slowing down a little bit, I can run a little bit longer. And then I feel more accomplished because I passed that 20 minute mark. And all of a sudden she's got motivation to go and try and do it again tomorrow. And that's very small and, and seemingly very trivial, but it was the spark that she needed to get out there and do it again the next day because she could actually go longer than 20 minutes. Um, 
And then she realized, well, now I'm going like, this is weeks later. Now I'm going 40 minutes at a pace that I couldn't even do for 20 minutes, like, you know, several, several weeks before. And it, and it sort of like builds and, you know, it builds in that way. But I think also you've got to constantly remind yourself of your why with a lot of my higher level athletes that I work with, they too hit points in their training where they just don't like it. They're not having fun anymore. And I got asked the same question. Why aren't you having fun? We peel back the layers on that, but oftentimes the prescription is to remind them why they got into the sport in the first place. And it had nothing to do with trying to get on podiums or gain sponsorship or, you know, set records and all that sort of stuff. It was, they loved trying to beat their friend across the schoolyard. It had a very simple origin to it. And, and everyone's origin story is a little bit different, but I remind my athletes all the time, like, remember your why, like, you know, why you're doing this now, but also why you got into this in, in the first place. Because I think as we develop in our athletic careers and our goals change and our motivation change. And, and that's super important. That can actually foster frustration in a, in a lot of cases, but by bringing yourself back to center, back to the beginning, remembering your roots. And I think that applies to other aspects of life as well. It can just help put you in the right mental space to actually make progress again. It's so good. I, I'm always about, you said grace, I think forgiving yourself for not, you know, for missing that run or forgiving yourself for, you know, taking a break or whatever. And, and you brought up a good point because so much of us, we can get, you know, the motivation to go do it because we're, we're part of a group. So we know there's another 50 people that are going to run, but that's not happening now. Right. And one thing I obviously I always relied on is I feel like people enjoy running more when they don't hurt. So I've always given them that piece of the puzzle, but I love the why, because we need a purpose to just be comfortable in our own skin and care about our own self. And so much of the time we're, we're working out because we want less fat or we want to look different and all those things. And I think, I think when you start to look at taking care of your body differently, and, and that means either health and wellness from a rehab or fitness or strength perspective, and also whatever the fitness is you choose. I think when we start to recognize that this is about me and I get to set the rules and the boundaries and I get to decide what the little wins are, I think is really important. And I, I, I think that's something I've always enjoyed. I've always, I know I, you'll come down and I'll go jump on a run with you. And I know how fast you can run. And I'm like, there's no way I can keep up with this guy. But reality is we go out and we run and we run at a pace that, you know, I'm, I'm a decent runner. We go out and run in the rain sometimes. That was fun. And I, I like the fact that, when we've done it, some of it's about just sharing with each other kind of uh, what's going on in our world. And I think because we can't do that right now, sometimes I think it's nice to go share later. Hey, Mara, I did this run and it was awesome. And I did this trail run and found a new spot. I think we, we need to keep that even though we can't run together. Yeah, I'm doing a lot of that myself right now. I have two guys that I typically meet up with at least once a week on Wednesdays to do a workout together. And we haven't done that since early March at this point, but I still send them the workout every Tuesday. We do it on our own time. We check in with one another afterward and it's not the same, but we also know this is temporary. At some point we're going to be able to get back out there and do it again. And I think when we do, I know when we do, it's going to have that much more meaning to it. But for right now is we're just trying to work through this period in time 
having one another to stay accountable, to stay motivated, to stay inspired, or even on those days when we don't and say, hey, it's okay. Um, I think that can be really helpful because if it's just you all the time and you put all that pressure on yourself or you tie your self-worth to whether or not you got out for a run that day or you smashed your workout or you know you run a race which no one can do right now like that's really hard um so i think just surrounding yourself with people who can support you can help bring more joy to this activity of running can give you you know something to look forward to whether it's an in-person interaction or just being able to talk about what you did that week it's it's so so important to have you know that that support around you at all times couldn't agree more. Um, obviously, we're getting close to, we're right about an hour here. I want to show uh, one more set of videos just so people can see some plyometric drills we do for running form. And then we'll, let's just open it up for a few questions and we'll finish with a few questions. And obviously, people know how to get a hold of you, the Morning Shakeout podcast. Uh, you want to share your email? Uh, I won't share my email, but if you go to the morningshakeout.com, uh -oh, you can subscribe to the morning shakeout. And if you reply to that email, you'll get one back from me, but I won't put it out there in public. Yeah, I got you. No worries. That's perfect. And then you can put your questions in the chat starting now. That's fine. I'm going to show you a couple of videos. I, I don't mind sharing my email. I, it's blasted out anyway, Brian at Rehab United. And you can, you can reach out to me with any questions. I'm a big fan of people sending me a video of what's going on and it lets me have some, some reference before I contact them back. So uh, we're going to show you some plyometric videos. Um, I love this stuff because plyometrics are so valuable. I always make sure people understand you can't overdo it. So this is a skater hop. And I love this lateral motion because it's really forcing the glute to turn on. That's a big one. Um, so that's the first level. This is second level, just skipping the, the, you know, the piece in the middle. Lunge hop matrix. You can see how good of a dancer I am. Uh, we give this to a lot of our runners when they're progressing back because if they can do this, that's the transition of loading on single leg. So pushing off one leg, landing on the other, you notice my foot has to adapt, my knee has to adapt. You'll also notice the depth I get through. That's an important step. Now, once I feel confident and safe in that, then I'm gonna move someone to a single leg hop matrix. This is a little tougher. It requires some control. I would not jump right into this with someone that's got some issues or lacks control single leg. Big fan of the step up knee drive hop. You'll notice this is my calf raise. I'm pushing, really pushing off with the foot. Also, you'll notice I use an arm driver in this, super important. And then I threw this in here because core is so vital. Most of the athletes that are really successful that I work with just focus on their core. This allows a little hip drive in there. So. Good little fun one. Um, the, the next piece of that is, do I have another video I wanted to push? Oh, I wanna show you the bound drill. So this is a drill I give people and I make them think about a bunch of rocks in the pool where they're landing on one rock and pushing forward. Notice how I drive my knee up high. I want it at least up to the belt line and I'm landing right underneath my hip. So even though it looks like I'm reaching out, you'll notice I. Uh, land right underneath. Scissor jumps, again, load the glute, load the position. You'll notice I have different speeds. This one's crazy, don't do this if you haven't practiced, um, but it forces that change of direction, also position. So I'm a big fan of taking the pelvis through a lot of different motions. And this drill seems to help people understand where they should land and the focus of driving enough force. 
So if you're doing this drill and you can't push yourself in that position and create some, what, what, what I would call is time in the air, then we don't have enough strength. And so we might back this down and do it in a little bit, go back to the lunch hop matrix, go back to some of the skater hops until those get really, really dialed in. Okay, so those all are live right now on our YouTube page, YouTube Rehab United. And you'll know it's the right YouTube page because the logo of Rehab United is the one in the corner there. Um, however, YouTube tonight had a little issue. So we were trying to, we were going to play these on YouTube and they weren't showing up. So maybe, uh, we're getting busted for two rad of content. I don't know. So, um, you guys got some questions, uh, Mario, you could probably see those. My eyes got to get checked. Uh, how do you know if, and when you may need some rehab? I'll answer that real quick. Um, if something happens that you're familiar with. You've had uh, you know, some back pain in the past. And you know it consistently comes. That's absolutely something you should get into rehab and, and get a physical therapist working with you. Secondly, if you're performing and doing whatever activity, it doesn't have to be running, but if you're in the garage and you tweak something, my personal opinion is you should find your trusted resource in A, in the town you live in. That would be part one. But my real answer to that is we have technology telehealth and we can do it online. One of my athletes is on that is in Georgia and I talk to her once a week and we go over, you know, how to make her back feel better. And she's gotten so much better just working on a computer. So I've never touched her. I've never been able to massage her back. And that shows you, you can get better on, on a screen like this. There's no way we can, there's plenty of ways we can transition you, modify our movements and assess what's going on. So um, you're asking the guy that's going to say, I think you should go to rehab very quickly because instead of having 12, 15 sessions, you can go in for one to two or three sessions, learn your HEP and do it. And you'll be back to back in no time. But most of the people come and see us and they say, Oh, I've had the issue for 15, 20 minutes or excuse me, 15, 20 minutes. I've had it for 15, 20 days or whatever. And um, I think that's an important step. So uh, Mario, you got this one. Can you speak on mindful running or, or the mindset? That, that around running okay um mindful running to me is just being completely in tune and aware with what you're doing and i think the best way to put yourself in that space is to run unplugged get rid of the music get rid of the podcasts i mean don't listen to my podcast when you're running i don't listen to anything when i run and a big reason for that is it's oftentimes the one time of my day when I'm not looking at a screen, when I've got no input coming at me. And because of that, I'm very aware of, or I try to be very aware of my body and how I'm moving and how I'm feeling in a given moment, the environment that I'm in, like what's happening on, underneath my feet? How am I interacting you know, with the ground and my environment around me? To me, that's mindful running. And the only way to achieve that is remove that outside stimuli and to remove the input and a lot of runners these days have input when they're running um and sometimes that's great if you're running with a friend of yours and you guys are having a conversation like you and i brian do when i come down to san diego i mean that's amazing i mean running running in that situation could be sitting at a coffee shop it could be going for a walk but you just happen to be running and, and that's great but i think true mindfulness when you're there by yourself um, and you're really just trying to focus on that present moment 
where you are, what it is that you're doing, how you're moving. Um, the easiest way to do that is just to remove all of the outside stimulus. That can be really uncomfortable at first, but it takes time to develop that type of focus and that type of awareness. But in my experience, that's the best way to do it. Um, from a general mindset standpoint, I think it's going to depend on what you want to get out of running um, in general and then on a specific day. I know for me, when I'm going to the track to do a hard workout, my mindset on that day is a lot different than when I'm doing my recovery day the next day. And I think one thing that's important as an athlete in training is you've got to have different levers that you can pull, different switches, different modes um, for different types of environment. The days that you are going to be working hard and you need to be really focused, you are really focused and dialed. Your physical output is going to be really high in those workouts, but also the mental and emotional output is going to be really high. That's why that recovery day the next day or the next couple of days is equally as important. The stress on the body is a lot lower. The stress on the mind is equally as low. You're not looking to, you know, to work hard. So it's definitely from a mindset perspective, like that's, that's very different. Uh, and again, that's not something, as I talked about earlier, that happens overnight. You learn how to develop that with time. Um, but also realizing, you know, sometimes it's not about training. Sometimes you're going to go out and like, my purpose for this run is especially these days is to just get some fresh air is to get out of my house is to get out from in front of the screen. It can be a very like freeing type of thing to reduce the input. And, and I think there's definitely a lot of, you know, interplay between mindfulness and mindset. Great, great answer. Um, we'll take one more question and uh, I'll, I'll answer it and then we'll say our goodbyes. But the question is, um, you know, since I can't get into the physical therapy clinic and specifically Rehab United or any clinic, how do I deal with the injury that I have? And I'll tell you from our, from Rehab United standpoint, first and foremost, we're open. We've actually fortunately never closed. Um, musculoskeletal pain is, is absolutely essential. Um, although it would never compare to being in a hospital and being sick or whatever on a ventilator and so forth. Uh, if you have back pain and you're sitting at home, anyone that knows what pain is like and how, how miserable it can be, they want to get around their therapist. So we've taken massive precautions. Our, our therapists wear masks. We have a massive cleaning uh, protocol. We have tables separated. Um, and you can't see it now, but tables are 10 feet apart and our stretches are nowhere near each other. And we have a team of people that clean something the second you're done using it. So we do screening and questioning. You know, we have plexiglass uh, up at our front offices, which we never thought we'd get to. But for me, it's about keeping our community safe. That means my staff, our team is safe, as well as anyone that comes to see us. Now, I get it. Some people are still not comfortable doing so. So we have telehealth and uh, California government has uh, actually nationwide has mandated it that telehealth will pay. So you actually get on a video screen just like this and your insurance will pay parallel Whatever they paid before, they'll pay now. And it's highly effective. We've seen people be very surprised by the fact that, oh, you don't even, you're not putting your hand on me, but yet I'm still getting better. Um, and then for some people, they like to do a check-in. They'll do one session, then do a bunch at home, telehealth, and they'll come back in. So we are available to you in any capacity, regardless of where you're at. We had a telehealth eval from London today. So 
it, it's awesome that we have an outreach out in the community and we're super grateful. So best part about it, it's one-on-one. Uh, you're not sharing your therapist. They're not getting distracted. It's, it's focused. So a lot of times it can be a little bit quicker than an hour because you're not over there getting water and, and you know, modifying anything. So, um, Mario, I can't thank you enough. I mean, such a good buddy of mine. I, I haven't even met your dog, which was named after my son, obviously. My son's name is Tahoe. Mario's dog is Tahoe. He really didn't name it after my son. But um, I appreciate you being here, man. I, I think you have such great insight for people. Again, I've said this so many times, but if you haven't either read his newsletters or been on and listened to the Morning Shakeout podcast, it's so awesome to get different perspectives and the way you tease things out of people is fantastic. So I, I really appreciate you hanging out with me today. I hope people that get to listen to this now and later really get some value out of it. So I appreciate you being here. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you for your friendship and thank you for all that you're doing in San Diego where I no longer live, but also as you just described in a, on a much wider scale now through telehealth, I know after our podcast conversation, we had a number of people reach out to you and set up remote consults. So as Brian said, um, if you're dealing with something, I mean, he's call me biased. I don't care. He's the best in the business. His staff is the best in the business. If you need some help um, with whatever injury you're dealing with right now, give him a call. We'll guide you regardless. We'll make sure that uh, if you can't see us or don't want to be online with us, that's fine. We pick up the phone. We'll call PTs in your area. We'll find someone for you. Uh, we'll do whatever it takes. So thanks again for joining. Uh, we will be putting this uh, recording up I would encourage you to share it. You can share a link on your social media. I'd love it if you posted about the morning, uh, you know, at the morning podcast, the morning shakeout podcast. Thank you. Mario, what is it? What is the tag? So I get it right. The morning shakeout, the morning shakeout podcast um, uh, and the Instagram and Twitter handle is at the AM shakeout. Perfect. Throw that on the uh, chat so people have it. And All you right. obviously can tag at Rehab United. And that means a lot to us because believe it or not, people see it. They see your tag. They'll follow up and check out our new stuff. We got one next week uh, that we're doing with a, the swim mechanic on shoulder mechanics and strength for swimmers and, and what we can do about swimming right now, as well as we have some coming up on pelvic pain, uh, prenatal, postnatal, pelvic floor stuff. So we got stuff coming to you all the time at a forum. So please share the word. Uh, the more people that we can reach, the better. So thank you again so much. Have a great night. We appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Thanks, Mario. Thanks, Brian. You're the man.